Good morning, church. How are we? Good. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get that out right now. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we've got some people coming down the aisles right now that would love to get you one. All you have to do is raise your hand, and they will pass one over to you. And once you've got that, once you've got that out, let's go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We are picking up exactly where we left off last week, Hebrews chapter 4 in our series, The Fight for Focus. You know what one of the worst feelings in the world is? Let me paint a picture for you of one of the worst feelings in the world. You're driving along the highway and you're not really paying attention to how fast you're going and out of the corner of your eye you see a police officer. You know that feeling? You're zipping along the road and then you're, you're, you're going to your next destination and you're probably going a little too fast and out of the corner of your eye you see the officer tucked behind some trees, right? And what's the first thing you typically do when you see that police officer? Someone last night said, you speed up. (laughs) Crazy person. You hit the brakes, right? As if you're going to fool anyone. Like, no, 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 I was going 70 the entire time. The entire time. And you keep driving. If you've got kids in the car, you're like, quiet, quiet. They can hear you, you know. (laughs) And uh, you keep looking in the rearview mirror, right? Half the time is spent looking out the front. Half the time is spent looking out the rearview mirror. And you're just looking to see, is he coming out? Is he coming out? And in that moment, as the adrenaline is coursing through your body, you experience what I think is one of the worst feelings in the entire world, and that is getting caught, getting exposed. When I was 10 years old, my sisters and I, we were in the basement of the house I grew up in, and we had all the lights off, and we were playing this game, where we were kicking and throwing this ball around, which is a terrible game to play if your mom has a display case full of glass items. And one of us, probably me, kicked or threw the ball that direction and it hit a vase. And do you know what it did to that vase? It broke it. And we're playing in the dark and we hear this thing shatter into a thousand pieces and we get really quiet really fast. And we go over to the lights and we turn the lights on and we head over to where we heard the the noise and sure enough, there is one of mom's vases broken. And so I turn to my sisters and I say, get on the couch right now. And I sit them down and I say, if any of us speak of this moment ever again, we are all dead. So, so let's swear an oath of secrecy that we will never talk about this again. And I made them swear this oath of secrecy. And we grabbed those shards. And instead of throwing those shards in the trash can outside or burying them in the backyard, I did what any logical 10-year-old would do. I put them in the drawer of a desk in the very next room. <laughs> did my mom go into that room? Yes, frequently. But I figured, you know what, if we put them in there, they'll be hidden and no one will find them. Well, fast forward, uh, let's say a day. (laughs) My mom is in that room, she opens the drawer and she sees a shattered vase and she's like, how did this get there? And so we hear our first and middle names, which is like the worst thing you can hear as a kid, right? All of us, and so we all dart down into the room and I see where she is and and my heart starts to beat 100 miles per hour and, and I start to freak out. So I, I sit on the couch with my sisters and I give them a death stare and I say, I'm, I'm like, if you break, if you break, we're all dead. And, and my mom holds up one piece of, of the vase and she says, do any of you know about this? And my sisters, like in unison, tears down their faces, Ryan made us do it! <laughs> Busted, exposed, it's the worst feeling 
ever, and I'm sure many of us have memories from, from, from childhood, probably more from our teenage and college years, maybe recently as adults of, of getting exposed, getting found out, and it's so painful, and we try to hide our secrets, and, and the things that we know we shouldn't be doing, we try to hide these things from other people, and we think we can for a while, and, and we try to cover our tracks, but we don't cover every single angle, and eventually, sooner or later, we are, are caught or exposed. We see this play out in God's word. We see this principle in God's word through, throughout. Numbers 32, 23 says, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. We have story after story throughout God's word, character, person after person. Maybe King David is the best example of individuals trying to cover their tracks but then getting exposed. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or, or evil. And so, so whether it's here on earth, whether it's before one another, whether it's before God, at some point, we will be found out. We will be exposed it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of, of when, and that's a very big difference because a lot of us, myself included, we run around like little gods in our universe thinking that no one can stop us and nothing can touch us, but eventually it is all going to come crumbling down. But, but this is the most important thing. Listen to this. How I respond when I'm exposed shows where I place my trust. It's our big idea this morning. How I respond when I'm exposed shows where I place my trust. When I'm found out, when I'm caught, what I do in that moment, where I run to, what I run to, who I run to, is a litmus test for where my faith is, for where I place my trust. And what God's word is going to show us today is that while we will certainly be found out, that's inevitable. The important aspect lies in how we respond when we are exposed. So let's go to God's word. Let's go to Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. Look there with me. It says this, for the word of God is living and it's active. It's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Here's, here's the first thing I want us to see in our passage this morning. It's this, I can't hide from God. I can't hide from God. And this isn't some sort of encouragement or exhortation to all of us right now, like stop hiding from God. And certainly I would encourage that in all of our lives. What, what, what God's word is trying to say here, the, the point I'm trying to make from this text right now is this, like try your hardest, run your farthest, run your fastest away from God. Use your best excuses. There's no hiding from him. Absolutely zero hiding from God. Does anyone ever get like caught up in like the rabbit hole of, of online internet videos? Like you just find yourself wasting time. Anyone else do that? I'm the only one who poorly stewards my time. <laughs> Facebook gets me all the time right now. I'm not sure how Facebook did it, but I'll be on Facebook and I'll just be watching the stupidest videos and I'll be like, how did 30 minutes pass? One of my favorite videos to watch um, are police chase videos. You guys know what I'm talking about? Police chase videos? 
And it's like, the, the tip, in this genre of video, the typical camera angle is, is the helicopter floating above. But the guy that you're typically watching is in a car, and he's careening through the streets of some random city. And he's going 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 miles per hour. Highways, side roads, going the opposite direction on certain roads. And I'm sure to that guy in the car, it seems like he's making progress. It seems like he's getting away. He sees a couple cop cars behind him, and he makes a couple turns, and he doesn't see them anymore. What he... What, what apparently he doesn't realize is there is a helicopter slowly hovering above him the entire time. And it looks like a little toy car slowly zooming through a toy city. Eventually, police are able to create sort of a barricade and there's no driving any further. So what does this individual typically do? They get out of their car, right? As if that's going to be any better. And, and, and they get out of their car and typically these individuals who are running away aren't the most athletic individuals. <laughs> So the guy gets out of the car in this particular video and he runs and runs very slowly and he tries to jump over a fence relatively unsuccessfully. He finally gets into the backyard and you know what this guy does? He goes into this person's doghouse <laughs> and he hides in there and, and, the, and the police officer in the helicopter is like, um, yeah, he's, he's in the backyard of the house where my spotlight's on in that doghouse. And then you see the police officers go back there and kick over the doghouse and they find him. And there he is. There's no, there's no hiding from an entire police force when they're looking after you in a city. Listen, God's word is even more powerful in its ability to expose and to find us. The writer writes in verse 12 that God's word is living and it's active. It's, it's teeming with life. It has the capability and the capacity for, for making things in your life to change and be different and transform you. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is it is unlike any other book you pick up and you read. You might pick up a nonfiction book, a, a, a business book, a self-help book, and you might be inspired you might be encouraged, you might gain some wisdom, but, but, but listen, none of those books have the power to change you in and of themselves. They have no power, only God's word does. In fact, God's word is so powerful that, that, that what does the writer compare it to? A sword, he compares it to a sword. And not just any kind of sword, a two-edged sword, which means that any way that God's word cuts, it moves and it operates. And not like a bad butcher chopping at every which direction. It's precise. It says God's word, what does it say there? Pierces the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. In ancient times, it was seen as nearly impossible to, to split joint and marrow and, and soul and spirit. These things were practically inseparable. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying God's word. Can, can, can pierce through and, and split those and, and, and it can discern the thoughts and intentions of my heart, of, of, of your heart. That's what God's word can do. Every other book that we open up and we, we have it in our lap and, and we read it, um, we're gaining insight and we're gaining mastery. I think that's why those of us who do enjoy reading, we, we love reading so much because we're gaining this knowledge and we're conquering sort of this territory Worlds are unfolding before us and we gain mastery as we read. But listen, when we read God's word, something different is happening. 
Yes, we're gaining insight about the God of the universe, but we are not the dominant operator when we are opening God's word and humbling ourselves before it. As God's spirit moves and operates, we are not reading and mastering him. He is reading and mastering us. God's word functions like a mirror in those moments, and I think that for many of us, we, 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 we acknowledge that, and we feel that, and we experience that, and we hate that. I think if we did a quick survey of, of our uh, habits with reading God's word, I think a lot of us would say, like, I, I want to be reading it more. And I think there are a couple reasons why we don't get in God's word as often as we want to. First of all, I just think we're lazy. I think we're lazy and it's hard and it takes discipline and it takes some work and setting aside time and it's easier to hop on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, kind of digest and consume that instead of getting into God's word. But listen, I think underneath that, I think a reason why we don't get into God's word is because it functions like an unflattering mirror to us. We get into it and it exposes us for who we really are. It's like taking a selfie and not putting any filters on it. <laughs> That's what God's word functions like. And it's, and it's not maliciously, it's not to hurt us, but out of love, God wants us to see our need for him. And so he opens us up, he exposes us, he reads us through his word. There is no hiding from God. And if there's any question about this, verse 13 just lays it all out there. Look there again, it says this, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Notice this first in verses 12 and 13, the writer goes from talking about God's word to just talking about God himself. There's no difference there. God's word reveals his very nature and his character. And what we see here in verse 13 clearly is that before God, each and every one of us are naked and exposed. No, no, no human, no man, no woman, no child, no animal can hide from the sight of the Lord. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden. And they were naked and unashamed for a season, but they gave into temptation and sin and they were exposed and ashamed and full of guilt because of their sin. That is our state. And the most sobering component of this entire reality is that last part of verse 13. We must give an account. Each and every one of us, we must give an account. And so listen, we can, we can hide from one another. We can try to hide from one another. We can try to hide from, from our small group leaders, from the people in our small group, from our spouses. We can try to hide from our friends. We can try to hide from our kids. But listen, there is absolutely no hiding from God. Can't hide from him. There isn't a room in your house that God doesn't see into. There isn't an app that you open on your phone that God doesn't see. There isn't a motivation that rises up in your heart that God can't sniff out. He sees all, he knows all, and we will be exposed. There is absolutely no hiding from God. But remember the big idea. All of us are getting exposed. What really matters is is, is how do we respond? How do we respond when we're exposed? I think our natural tendency is to want to run away, but let's keep reading God's word because it gives us some very, very much needed good news right now. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so yes, there is this very real reality that we can't hide from God. He sees us 100%, but listen, here is the good news. We have the greatest defender in the universe. I have the greatest defender in the universe, the greatest ally, the greatest partner, the greatest advocate in the universe. Batman had Robin, Michael Jordan had Scottie Pippen, and and you have Jesus Christ. I'm gonna say you win. You win every single time. You have the greatest defense. It's kind of what Jesus functions as for us, our our great defense. He's like an amazing defense attorney. And there is such a thing as having a bad defense attorney. You know, if you can't afford your own defense in in the court of law, uh, a few decades ago, they, they passed a law that said, you know, the court, the state would appoint a public defender for you. Now, these public defenders are are typically publicly funded, and the funding there isn't really good, and it's not really the most prestigious job for attorneys to get out of law school. If you go to law school and you work your butt off and you're pulling out loans and, and you need to pay those off, typically you aren't looking to become a public defender. Many people take the job because it's a noble thing. They, they, they want to defend those who can't defend themselves. But, but, but listen, the amount of people who are taking that job is decreasing. The amount of funding going to that profession is decreasing. But listen, one thing that isn't decreasing is the amount of cases. And I read this article this past week that said the average public defender has roughly 15 minutes per week per client. That includes preparing the case, that includes um, witnesses, that includes talking to the client, and that includes representing the individual before the court. 15 minutes every single week. Imagine if you were wrongly accused of a crime, you didn't have the money to afford a defense, and so you got a public defender, and they were defending you for 15 minutes. Would you feel good about that? No. Imagine if you were guilty, you made a mistake, And you regretted that mistake, but you know you made that mistake. But again, you couldn't afford a defender, a public defender. So they they appointed you one, and, and, and you were hoping for the best possible ruling. Do you have a lot of confidence that that individual is going to get you the best possible ruling with 15 minutes of their time? No. And listen, you might think, well, people who put themselves in that situation deserve what they get. They're guilty. Listen, as, as, as bad off as that individual might be, each and every one of us in this room are far worse off. We are way more guilty. And, and, and not just that, we don't deserve a defense. We don't. We don't deserve any sort of defense, and yet who do we have? We have Jesus Christ. We have the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Now, great high priest, that term should mean like nothing to 99 percent of us. But here's why it was important. What the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's alluding to to the religious practices of ancient Israel. And the great high priest, what he would do is he was a, a man appointed by God to represent the people of Israel. And once a year, everyone say once, once a year, this priest would go into the holy of holies with this thing of blood, blood from a lamb sacrificed. And he'd take this thing of blood in this dark room in the Holy of Holies, and he'd go to the Ark of the Covenant. And if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, just go check out Indiana Jones, and it'll explain a bit to you. He took the blood, 
went into this dark room and he would pour the blood out on top of it, on top of what was called the Bema seat or the mercy seat. Why would he do this, this kind of relatively strange, weird picture to us, this relatively morbid picture? Why, why would he do this? Well, what he was doing is he was atoning for the sins of Israel in that moment. And they had to do it every single year. So why why is the writer of Hebrews saying that Jesus is the great high priest? That was the job of the high priest. But the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the great high priest. This is why Jesus is the great high priest. Because while the high priest in Israel had to make that sacrifice once every year, Jesus made the sacrifice once for all. Once for all. And do you know what the sacrifice was that Jesus made? wasn't the greatest lamb in all the world. It was himself. He was the lamb. And Jesus is our defense. And so he goes before God the Father pleading our case on our behalf. And you know what evidence he's pointing to? His own blood. His own perfect, righteous blood. He's pointing to that on our behalf. We encountered this theological term a few weeks ago. It's called propitiation, the idea that the blood of someone else, the sacrifice of someone else would cover up our mistakes. Even though we're guilty and deserve death and destruction, Jesus on our behalf, and we don't deserve it for a second, pleads for us. Aren't you grateful for that? We have the greatest defender in the universe. But it's not just that. This isn't why Jesus is the, this isn't the only reason why Jesus is our great defender. He is the great high priest, which makes him sound so high and lofty and above us and and holy and, and different, and he is. But is he so high above us that he can't understand you and me? No, no, what is what does it say? Look again at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This Jesus, he looks at our guilt when we're exposed. He looks at our shame. He he looks at our shortcomings. And listen, he gets it. The God of the universe the one who spoke all of creation into existence. He looks at our weakness and he gets it. He doesn't look at our weakness and and, and grow confused. He doesn't look at our weakness and, and, and he isn't filled with shame or disappointment. He looks at our weakness and, 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 and he sympathizes. He gets it. He is compassionate. He understands. He wants us close because he sympathizes. And again, I I don't fully understand how this works. This is Jesus Christ, he's fully God. How could someone who's fully God and also fully man be tempted in every respect that we are and sympathize with us? I don't know, but God's word says it, so I believe it. And by faith, let's lean into this comforting promise that we have a savior who, who doesn't just plead our case on our behalf. He He sympathizes with us, and he he gets it. And this should compel us to do a couple things. The first thing we see in verse 14 is this. We must hold fast our confession. We must hold fast our confession. But what is our confession? 
Is the confession that we're supposed to hold fast to some sort of complex statement of faith that we have to memorize and internalize and make sure we never forget? No, no, this is what I think our confession is. Our confession is this, I am broken and I need you, Jesus. That's our confession every day. I'm a mess. I'm falling apart and Jesus, I need you. On the outside, I look so put together, clean, I've got it figured out, but inside, Lord, I need you, I am broken. Would you meet me here? That needs to be our confession. So different than what we see sort of publicly displayed typically in Christianity, typically it's we've got it right, you've got it wrong, figure it out or you're going to hell in a handbasket. Our confession is one of brokenness, one of humility, one of weakness, because we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And listen, if we forget this, if we don't hold fast to this, then we've lost the gospel entirely. Because this is what the gospel is. I'm broken, I'm a mess, and I need you, Jesus. Listen, none of us can hide from God. Everything's going to be exposed, but we have this great defender who pleads on our behalf how I respond when I'm exposed shows where I place my, my trust. And so, if we're all going to be exposed, how do we respond? I think after the first couple of verses, I was in a spot where it's like, I'm running away. I'm hiding. But since we have this great defender, look at verse 16. Here's what we're called to do. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let me read that again, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of, in time of need. Listen, in light of everything we've read here this morning, this is what God is calling, compelling each and every one of us to do right now. We must run to God. I must run to God. Don't run away. Don't try to hide anymore. Like Adam and Eve, like, like King David, don't try to cover up what eventually will be exposed. It's just going to lead to more pain and more hurt and more heartache and more disappointment. Run to God. Our faith is displayed not just in our obedience, but what we do when we're disobedient. Our faith is displayed in disobedience when we repent of it and when we turn away from it and when we run back to God. And when we run to him, we are not going to find punishment and judgment and anger and wrath. We are going to find grace and mercy in our time of need. That's what we're gonna find. Run to him with boldness, with confidence. Earlier I talked about doing something stupid as a kid, but, but far more frequently I did stupid things as a teenager. Anybody else with me on that one? And when I was uh, 16 years old, I had just um, gotten my license and... Um, my, my parents had gotten me this car, and it was kind of a, a beater. This was all the way back in like 2001. It was a 1987 Chevy Corsica. 
You know this car? And the ceiling was kind of falling in and stuff like that. This was the car I had, and I just gotten in, I just gotten my license, and I was driving over to a friend's house, and I can remember the picture perfectly, even though it was almost like 20 years ago. I was on this side road, and I was crossing this like relatively busy street, and it was like dusk, and I looked both ways, and I was 100% positive that there were no cars coming either direction, and I was just going to cross this intersection. And so I hit the gas, and I crossed the intersection, but, but I hit something. I hit someone's car. I just clipped the tail and the back corner of this person's car. And like I said, my car was not a nice car, so that wasn't a big deal, but this person had just bought their car. To make matters worse, the woman who was driving the car, her husband was a police officer in the town that I lived in. So I, I, I was feeling awful. I was feeling like trash. I was just like, how could I have done this? So we pull off and we go into this gas station and I was so nervous. I mean, I'm 16 years old. I've never gotten a car accident. I don't know what to do. And so in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, I gotta call my dad. And back then, like the cell phone I had in 2001 was like pretty massive. It was one of those big phones and I flipped it open and I started dialing my dad's number and I was terrified. I was like, how's he going to respond in this moment? Is he gonna be angry? Is he gonna be wrathful? Is he gonna say, we just bought that car for you. You just got your license. Do you understand what this is going to do to our insurance bill? But I didn't know what to do in the moment. I had no choice. I had gotten myself in a pretty big problem and I needed to call him. And so I called him and I waited and he picked up. You know what he said? He said, you better never come home. I'm just kidding, he didn't say that. <laughs> he said, um, he asked two questions. He said, are you okay? And is anybody else hurt? That's how he responded. And he walked me through what to do and he said, exchange insurance information, make sure you get her phone number, call the police. I was terrified, I was nervous, I was probably shaking the whole time. We exchanged numbers, we did all of that stuff. We sort of went our separate ways and what my dad did was he then cut a check for the cost to repair their vehicle. And I had to take that check over to the person's house, kind of give it to them and apologize again. And had to work a little bit to pay that money off. But the whole situation got resolved. Was it hard? Was it embarrassing to have to call my dad? A little bit, yeah. Were there consequences? Sure, I had to pay for the repairs. But listen, reaching out to my father, I was able to get the support I needed in that moment. And he came alongside me and I wasn't going at it alone anymore. Listen, your experience with your earthly father might be drastically different. Might be nothing like that, but listen, that's not the point. You might have the best earthly father in the world, and he pales in comparison to your heavenly father, who is waiting right now with open arms for you to run to him. How I respond when I'm exposed, shows where I place my trust. Where do you place your trust? Where do you place your faith? Do you place your faith and trust in yourself and your ability to manage your own circumstances and control your own chaos and your own mess? Listen, it doesn't matter if it's been the 
17th time you've been at this intersection again. The Lord is there waiting, willing to receive us. His grace knows no bounds because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. Remember, we have the greatest defender in the universe pleading on our behalf. The road is open, the road is clear for us to run to him to receive the help we need right now. And we need it. So what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna end things a little differently. I'd encourage you not to leave here so quickly. We're gonna sing two more songs and the first song is gonna be sung over us and provide us the opportunity to just reflect on the areas that we need to hand over to the Lord. And so even right now, would we just close our eyes, bow our heads right now? In the busyness of our lives, in, in the midst of even the busyness of this service, would we just take a moment to stop and reflect and ask the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and show us any ways in our hearts that are not honoring to him right now. Bring that before him. Father God, as we approach you right now, we pray that we would experience the grace and mercy you promise in Hebrews 4, 16. That as we draw confidently to your throne, that we would receive the grace and mercy that we need right now. We need you in our brokenness. We need you in our failures. We need you right now. Or for those of us who, who feel like we have weights and things that are just far too heavy to bear, God, would your spirit minister to us right now? Would you show your faithfulness again? And would we walk out of here praising your holy name? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.